you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, specifically to the sixth chapter. As we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13 in a message entitled, Jesus Teaching on Prayer. Now we're in a sermon series entitled, Thriving in Hard Times. And I want you to know hard times are coming. Troublesome days lie ahead for our world and perhaps even the church to some degree. And if we're going to survive, no, thrive, I believe we need to know how to pray. Because prayer changes things. And if it doesn't change things, it changes people. And if it doesn't change people, it'll change us. Jesus' teaching on prayer. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 9, Jesus speaking to his disciples then, Jesus speaking to his disciples now. After this manner, therefore, you are to pray. Our Father, which arts in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts or our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors or trespassers. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, so be it. What we just looked at and what we just read is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Just about every one of us here today are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. But some of us are familiar with the prayer for the wrong reasons. Let me explain. Some of you have been taught to memorize the Lord's Prayer. Because if you memorize it and repeat it, you get a sacramental blessing. So you remember it, you repeat it, that God will give you a special sanctifying or sacramental blessing. Others of you have been taught that the Lord's Prayer is all about penance. You say the Lord's Prayer because somewhere... In that Lord's Prayer, there is a magical ability to help your sins be forgiven. In fact, the more you say the prayer, the more forgiveness you will get. Okay. Still, some of you have been taught that the Lord's Prayer is to be a part of every worship service. If you have a worship service and you don't say the Lord's Prayer, shame on you. It's a kind of like a Baptist doxology or a church doxology or a denominational doxology. You, you just can't worship without it. And still others of you have been taught the Lord's Prayer, but maybe you learned it incorrectly. You know, when you try to remember something, particularly when you're young or you get older, sometimes you don't remember things correctly. Little Johnny was trying to remember the Lord's Prayer. And he said, Our Father who art in heaven, Howard is your name. 
Some of you thought, didn't know what God's name was. It's Howard. And then little Billy. He was trying to remember the Lord's Prayer and did pretty good till he got to this part. Give us this day our jelly bread. <laughs> little Mary said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us some emails. Well, pastor, what is the Lord's Prayer? If it's not a sacramental blessing, if it's not some form of penance, if it's not some glorified doxology, if it's not some misquoted Bible verses, exactly what is the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is simply this. It's a structured outline or guideline to teach us how to pray more effectively. It was never given to the disciples for memorization. It was given to the disciples that they would have a structure, an outline to guide them through their own prayer life. Up to this time, the disciples were not prayer warriors. They weren't. They watched Jesus pray. And as they watched Jesus pray, as they listened to Jesus pray, as they saw the the warmth and the intimacy that he had with the Father, as they saw great and mighty things happen every time Jesus prayed, they became envious. They became jealous. They said, Lord, teach us to pray like that. We want to have a loving relationship with the Father. We want to be able to know that when we pray, heaven pays attention and amazing things happen. Lord, teach us to pray. We want to learn how to pray like you. And so that's what brought us to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you the structure, the outline that will guide you through your own prayer life. And so with poetic beauty, profound simplicity, and majestic brevity, Jesus teaches the disciples, then and now, how we can pray with excellence and effectiveness. Because once again, if you're going to make it through what lies ahead, you better know how to touch God on your knees. Now in verses 5 through 8, and I'm not going to spend no time on these verses, Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by saying, these are the things that you don't need to do. These are the things you don't need to do when you pray. He was... He was talking about what the religious leaders of that day did. He said, don't pray like the religious leaders. So he gives the have-nots. And then he goes in, starting in verse 9, with the haves. These are things that you need to remember. These are some principles I want you to keep in mind as you go to prayer. So I'm going to give you three of them. I want you to pay attention. Principle number one, point number one, that Jesus would have you and I to know about prayer if we're going to be excellent and effective in it, just as he wanted the disciples to understand then, is this. Pray with relationship reverence. Pray with relational reverence. Look at verse 9. After this manner, after this manner, pray you. Our Father. Straight out of the block. 
without any stutter or stammer. Jesus opens up his teaching on prayer by telling us how we should address God if we are people of God. He says, our Father. Christianity is not a religion. The author of religion is the devil. Religion confuses people. Religion causes people to have misunderstandings. Religion turns people away from the truth. Religion is a stumbling block, not a stepping stone to know the true and the living God. That's why we have thousands of religions in this world, and all of them contradict one another. So, so Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship, a love relationship between the true and the living God and his people that claim him as their own. Now, Jesus was the Son of God. He was the only beloved, begotten Son of God there has ever been. And when he prayed, he always addressed God the Father as his Father. He, he dropped the God, he just called him Father. And over 70 times in the Gospels, the disciples heard Jesus address the God of heaven as Father. Now, he was Creator, but Jesus never called him Creator. He called him Father. He was Savior, but Jesus didn't call him Savior. He called him Father. He was Lord. He was God, but Jesus didn't call him any of that. Jesus always addressed him as Father because Jesus was his Son. Now you say, Pastor, but Jesus could do that because he was the Son of God. And so are we. We're not a begotten son. We're an adopted son. We've been adopted into the family of God, ladies and gentlemen, through our faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible says it very well. To them that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, to them that have received Him, they have the right to be called the sons and daughters of God, even to those who believe on His name. So you, if you're a born-again Christian and a gentleman, you are a son of God. If you're a born-again Christian and you're a lady, you're a daughter of God. You're a blue blood. You're in the family of God. And you don't have to call him creator. You don't have to call him savior. You don't have to call him Lord. You don't even have to call him God. You can call him father. And Paul said even Abba father, which means daddy. And so Jesus wants us to understand we're not praying to some impersonal, unemotional, disconnected, unattached God. We're praying to someone who loves us. And we're to love Him. Boy, that changes the whole dynamic of how you look at God when you understand 
He's a father. He's a daddy. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants to be connected to us. He wants to be involved in our lives. That's what he wants. So Jesus says, when you begin your prayer, call him Father. Because indeed he is, if you're a child of his. And then he goes on. Principle number two. As you pray to your father, as you pray to your daddy, as you share with him love and he shares with you love, you're to pray for his glory. Pray for his glory. Look at verse 9 and 10. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. A good prayer is addressed to the Father. A good prayer at least half of that prayer is going to be about God. Not about you. Not about somebody else. Not about our problems and our pains and our perplexities and our pressures. A good prayer is focused on God. And what is the purpose of you and I, who are sons and daughters of God? The purpose of us, the reason why we're alive right now, is we're to bring glory to the Father. That's the ultimate overriding purpose of why you're here. We're to bring glory to the Father. Now, notice with me the three ways that we glorify the Father through our prayers. Now, by the way, this can be challenging because we live in a day where there's so much shallow theology. And so much casual irreverence and so much me-oriented worship that we don't really know how to bring glory to God anymore. So Jesus teaches us. He says, when you go to pray, you pray to the Father, and these are three things that you can say that He wants to hear from you because these things bring glory to Him. The first thing is, hallowed be thy name. That's speaking of adoration, bringing glory to God through adoration of who he is and what he's like. Hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed means holy. Holy. Holy be his name. You know, when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, had an opportunity to look into heaven, one of the very few men who have ever had heaven's gates roll back, heaven's walls pushed aside, and he saw God. He saw heaven. He saw the God of heaven. And the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the only thing he could get out of his mouth when he saw this, this scene was what? Help me. Holy, holy. Three holies. Why three holies? Because he was teaching us that God is a triune God. 
There's but one God, but He's three persons. He's a Father, He's a Son, He's a Spirit. And when Isaiah peered into the heavens, he saw God the Father. He saw God the Son, the Lamb of God. He saw God the Spirit. And when he saw them, he said, Holy is God the Father, one holy. Holy is God the Son, two holies. Holy is God the Spirit, three holies. He was telling us that God is triune and God is holy. And when you approach Him, you approach Him as your Father with with love, but you also approach Him as a God who is holy with reverence. And admittedly, that can be difficult. I've often wondered, what would it be like to be the president's son? Your dad's the president of the greatest country there has ever been and will ever be. And your dad has an office in the White House. It's the Oval Office. Do you have to knock on the door when you go in? Can you go in at all? Does the Secret Service say you can't go in? He's the president, or do they let you in because he's dad? I don't know. So admittedly, He is our God, and He's a holy God, and He needs to be approached with reverence and respect. But yet, He's our Father. We love Him. But we bring glory to Him when we acknowledge who He is and what He's like. He's triune and He's holy. So we love Him as Father. We respect Him for His holiness. Now, if we should be that way in our prayers, we should be careful how we say things. Should we not be careful all the time? You know, it's sad when you see Christians sometimes, for whatever reason, say things about God they shouldn't say. God this, God that. You know what I'm saying. Shouldn't be. By the way, if you have a problem with profanity and it's a big problem or a little problem and it's constant and continual, you need to get saved. There's no such thing as a cussing Christian. Christians can cuss, but there's no such thing as a cussing Christian. We need to watch what we say about God using profanity. We need to watch what we say about God using triteness. You know, we're we're so casual anymore. We've got the idea that if we can bring God down to our level, we'll love Him more. That's not true. That's why you've got to be careful with Bibles and books that tend to humanize God. God can't be humanized. God is God. And we shouldn't call Him the big man in the sky, my big pal in heaven. That, that's trivializing and triting Him, and you don't do that, ladies and gentlemen. You may not mean to, but that's how it sounds. We glorify Him by acknowledging who He is and what He's like. He's a triune God and He's holy. Adoration. Then notice it says, Thy kingdom come. We also glorify God when we affirm that He is a King who's coming with the kingdom. 
That word kingdom means to have a rule of a king. So when we say, thy kingdom come, what we're saying is, King Jesus, come and bring your kingdom with you. And you do know he's coming again. Just because Mr. Meade missed it yesterday doesn't mean he's not coming. He could come back tonight. And if he comes back tonight, there won't be a concert. So don't you show up looking for one. (laughs) Thy kingdom come. We bring glory to God when we acknowledge that he's coming as a king. And one day, this world will be his world. And the servants and the subjects and the soldiers that are in this world will be his. And everything about this world will be his. One day, one day, in heaven, on earth, and in hell itself, every knee will bend, every head will bow, every tongue will broadcast or confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. You say, I'm not going to do it. You may not do it now, but you will. Everybody will. Even old Slewfoot will. The demons of hell will. Everybody's going to bend the knee and bow the head, and he's going to be Lord. And then we bring glory to him when we acknowledge he's a triune God who is holy. Adoration. We bring glory to him when we acknowledge he's a coming king with a kingdom. And he's worthy to be served and praised. That's affirmation. And then, acceptance. Notice what he says in verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If he's our father, and he is. If he's the holy one, and he is. If he's a coming king, and he is then we need to know His will and we need to do it. It's not about you and I, it's about Him. We should strive down here to find the will of God and do the will of God, just as those in heaven know the will of God and do the will of God. Now, when it comes to the will of God, I'm going to take a moment here to tell you that There's three things you better get right when it comes to the will of God. Or your life is going to be miserable in this life and miserable in the life to come. There's a lot of things that we need to know about the will of God, and all of them are important. And by the way, every one of them can be found here. Because the will of God is always given to us in the Word of God. So you don't have to go searching for the will of God Just know the Word of God, and the Word of God will speak to you God's will. But there are three particular wills that you've got to get right. The first is your career. What is God's will for you concerning your career? That's important because most of us here are going to work 45 to 50 years doing something our lives. If you're going to be doing something for 45 or 50 years, wouldn't it make good sense you like what you're doing? And that you're in the will of God when you do it? I can't imagine going through life having to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning, get off at 5 o'clock in the evening, do that Monday through Friday, and hate every minute of it. 
And yet so many people do because they miss the will of God for their career. Listen to me. God wants you to have a job. He wants you to have a job. He wants to bless you through that employer that you work for, and He wants you to be a blessing to your employer. He wants you to make enough money that you can take care of your family and you can support His church. That's the will of God, that you have a job, that you be a blessing to your employer, that He in turn blesses you with an income that allows you to make sure your family's provided for and your church is provided for. And if you make a mistake in your career, it can make you miserable the rest of your life. So pray and search the Scriptures and search the Spirit for what you're going to do, particularly if you're young with your life. But there's another will that's very important. And it's not just the, God's will for your career, it's God's will for your companion. Do you know that God wants us to be married? Now, I realize not all of us will be married, and God will give you the grace to live as a single person if that be His desire. But for the most part, God wants us to have a companion. He wants us to have someone who, who's, who's loving and who's faithful. He wants us to have a relationship with that loving, faithful, spiritual person and a legal, binding covenant of marriage. If you pick the right companion, you'll have heaven on earth. If you pick the wrong companion, you won't have heaven on earth. <laughs> if you pick the right companion, you'll be happy as you can be. You pick the wrong companion, you'll be sad as you can be. And so many of us, we just jump up and marry the first thing that comes by. Last chance, Sam, I better get him. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> or you. You know, one of the things I've found in marriage counseling is that most couples are going to get married no matter what they hear about each other in marriage counseling. They've already come too far. They're not turning back. Even if the young woman looks at the guy and says, he's the devil in disguise, but I'm marrying him. I already sent the invitations. Can't go back out. You better know what who you're about to marry is in the will of God. Because if it's not, I'm promising you you will understand what hell is like on this side. And then the third will of God, you better get right, is not just your career, not just your companion, but what you're going to do with Christ. Because that is a choice, you know. And you better make sure that you make Him your Savior and you make Him your Lord and you follow Him and you be like Him. Because if you don't, you will have a tragic life and a tragic eternity. When we pray, we glorify Him. We acknowledge His person, we acknowledge His virtue, we acknowledge His coming kingdom, and we acknowledge the fact. We acknowledge the fact that we are here to bring glory to Him by carrying out His will. And then lastly, there's another series of points. 
Jesus is just giving an outline. That's all he's giving. He's not trying to teach us that we need to remember this or we need to make it complicated. He's our Father. We pray to Him with a love relationship. We pray to bring Him glory in all that we do, even as we address Him in prayer. And then we bring Him thirdly and lastly, our needs. We pray for His glory. We pray to our Father. Then we pray for our needs. Look at verse 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread. That's our needs. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's our need. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a need. We have needs. Are you in a physical body? Some of you looking like you having to think on that one. If you're here, you're in a physical body. Okay? Unless you're a ghost. If you're a ghost, Keith, come up here and finish the message. I'm out of here. We have needs because we are physical beings living in a physical body. And so, first of all, we must pray concerning our physical needs. That's what, that's what daily bread means. It's, it's more than just feed us, Lord, today. I believe it covers everything that's physical that we have need of in any given day. We're to go to the Lord and we're to give Him thanks and we're to ask Him for our physical needs. It's just between us and the Lord. We don't have to broadcast it to everybody else. Heard the story about two little boys who had went to their grandparents. And they were having their evening prayer before they went to bed. And the little brother, he prayed first. And he said, you know, it's my birthday coming up soon. I need a bicycle. I need an iPod. I need a new baseball glove. His, little, his big brother said, why in the world are you hollering? God's not deaf. He said, but granddaddy is. <laughs> We're not going to granddaddy. We're not talking to others. We're going to God. All good things come from above. So we pray about food. We pray about fresh water. We pray about shelter. We pray about medicine. We pray about clothing. We pray about transportation. We pray about relaxation and sleep. If we're married, we pray about sexual release. We pray about things that a physical body needs. And we go to the Father who can give them. Now, we in America don't do that much because we've got everything we need. We don't miss any meals. One day we might. We've got plenty of fresh water. One day we may not. Hard times might come to America and we might realize that the God of heaven is the one who provides everything we've got. And start thanking Him for Him and asking Him for it. So we pray for our physical needs, our provisions. And then we pray for pardon. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know what our greatest need is? To have God's forgiveness. You know what our greatest need is? To forgive other people. When we accept God's forgiveness, we're set free. When we refuse to forgive others, we become prisoners. And some of you right now are Christian prisoners. 
Jesus came to set you free, but you walk around with handcuffs. You got shackles around your feet. You're in a straitjacket. Maybe you even go home and get in a cell. I don't know. You know why? Because when you refuse to forgive this way, you will go into bondage. If you accept God's forgiveness, and God forgives, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us of all iniquity. That's a promise. So as God so forgives us, we're to forgive others. And so many of us, we hold grudges, we're vindictive, we want to pay back somebody, we want revenge. And all that does is poison our own well. And then we drink of that water. You've heard me say many times, unforgiveness creates bitterness. And bitterness is an acid that will always eat the container that holds it. Pardon. We ask God's forgiveness, we give forgiveness. We ask God to meet our basic daily needs, and He does. And then lastly, we ask for protection. Notice He says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Protection. You and I need daily provisions because we live in a physical body. You and I need to be pardoned by God and we need to pardon other people. We need to do that every day. And then we need protection. Deliver us from the evil one is the literal translation. We got two great enemies here that are out to do us in beside the fifth column that lives inside of us. We have a world out there that's out to get us through tempting us into sin. We've got a devil out there who's seeking to attack us. And we've got to have protection in order to survive that kind of onslaught. You say, Pastor, I don't need God's protection. i got 18-inch arms. <laughs> really? Sir, the devil will kick sand in your face in a second. You say, Pastor, I'm packing. They ain't going to mess with me. Really? Do you know one angel in the Bible killed 185,000 soldiers in one night? Sir, you can pack a bazooka. It ain't going to make no difference. We need the protection of the Lord. This world tempts us. This world tries to get into our mind and heart and allure us away, or lure us away from the things of God. You know why advertisers spend millions of dollars on commercials? Because they know that people watch those commercials and they're influenced by those commercials. So Satan has moved into the entertainment world. He's been there for a long time. And he uses the entertainment media in order to try to capture our minds and hearts and pull us away from God and the things of God. And we need to ask God's protection every day for that. You think it's just coincidental that that Man who's sitting in the bar with that bottle of alcohol in his hand, that he's six foot four and looks gorgeous. You think it's just coincident that he's big, strapped, and then you say, That's boy, that guy, wow. You think it's just they just picked him by accident? No. You think that, that bikini babe that has that beer can in her hand, 
You think they just went off the street and said, ma'am, come here, we need you to do a commercial. The world uses attractiveness to try to draw us into sinfulness. And we need the protection of the Lord. It's just overwhelming sometimes. You've got to have the Lord's protection. You also got to have the Lord's protection from Satan. The Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking him whom to devour. The devil's after you. He's always after those that are weak because they don't know their faith or they don't study their faith enough. He's always after the young in the faith who, who get away from the church and they're, they're easy to pick off. He's always after the sick who are struggling with spiritual things. The lion's the king of the beast, but you'll never see a lion attack a healthy animal. You know why? Because it's too much work. It's easier to attack a young animal, a sickly animal, a, a, an animal that is weak. And that's what happens to the, you and I as Christians. When we allow ourselves to get in that kind of state and drift away from the herd, Satan picks us off. We need to pray that God would keep us centered. God would protect us from Satan and from the world. You see how that works? He's our Father in closing. We pray and we pray glory to Him in our prayers. And then we present our needs to Him, believing that He is able to provide and to pardon and to protect. And then you just kind of build around that. Isn't Jesus profoundly simple and simply profound? Maybe. Heads are bowed in Isaac.